Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. This morning on this Resurrection Day, if you have your Bible open to the Gospel of John chapter 20. The one sermon this year until Christmas that will not be from the Old Testament. In the 18th century, the United States Congress issued a special edition of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. It was a simple copy. You can still find a copy today if you would be interested in it. There's not much good news in it, literally. Um, But it was a a Bible, uh, such as we have, with all the references to the miraculous and the supernatural eliminated, as well as any reference to the grace of God at work through the ministry of Jesus and his ministry while he was here on earth. Jefferson took the time in selecting his text and what was in and what was out, and he confined himself solely to the moral teachings of Jesus. So the closing words of the Jefferson Bible are actually found in John chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. That simply says, according to his Bible, there laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone at the mouth of the sepulcher and departed. That's where it ends. Friends, Jefferson might have been a great American, but thanks be to God, John's gospel doesn't end there. Neither do the other three. The good news today is that he lives. We're going to pick up where Jefferson sadly left off in the Gospel of John chapter 20, which provides us at least 11, not the entire chapter, but at least 11 eyewitnesses on that first Resurrection Sunday. One woman and 10 men whose lives were changed forever. They're friends, they're followers of Jesus, but they were not ready for that day. Even though he told them he was coming back, they just were not ready for what that day had in store. So if you would, stand to your feet as I read from the Word of God. Thank you for doing so. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon and Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. 
he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Father, thank you for this miraculous continuing of the story that we are not led death, death with death, the death of our hero, and that he is in fact alive. That the story did not stop with the tomb sealed up and guarded by the Roman soldiers, but that in fact on that third day, breath entered his lungs again, his heart began to beat, and he came back from the dead. Thank you that we have a living Savior. Thank you that when we sing of your goodness, it's a goodness that continues. Thank you that when we look to the future, that in our living Savior, we have an eternity with him, celebrating him, giving you glory for the great things you have done. Mainly, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died. Father, I pray for anyone in this room or watching online that if they do not know and have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that today would be a day that they would respond to the gospel call. They would repent and turn back for that time of refreshing that can only come from knowing Jesus. Father, teach us what we do not know this morning from your word, what we are not yet. Make us for your glory and our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen living Savior. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Let's talk first for a moment about that empty tomb. That's what verses 1 through 10 really point our attention to at first is that empty tomb. What sights had awaited Mary and the other gospels have some other women with her. John focuses specifically on Mary. In verse 11, he'll carry on her story. But for now, he presents Mary at the tomb and the other women are with her. We know which from the other gospels. What sights waited for them when they got there? Mary and the other ladies were going with spices and <clears throat> other things needed to care for the, what they thought was the dead body of Jesus wrapped up already in the tomb. But what they found was something that can only be described as radical. That word radical has a couple of different meanings, um, but the one I want to focus on today is just the, the meaning that says extreme or substantial change to an existing system. What happened on that resurrection day changed death. It changed life. It changed everything that Mary and the other disciples would ever understand and know. It changed their standing before God. It changed their position before God. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But certainly the resurrection was absolutely radical. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to defend the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection because even at that moment, 
Even at this point, early in the church's life, there were already people saying the resurrection was not true. The resurrection never happened. And so Paul writes about that in chapter 15, and he runs down in just the first five or six verses of that chapter, he runs down the list of eyewitness after eyewitness who, who saw Jesus alive to the point that he says there were over 500. Now listen, if you commit a crime, I wouldn't suggest it, but if you do and you go to court and they've got 500 eyewitnesses lined up against you, there's not a chance for you. Eyewitness account is important. It's vital to the story, and there is, Paul cites, over 500. But beyond just the eyewitnesses, Paul has this to say about the resurrection and the importance of it for the church. If Christ has not been raised, he wrote, then our proclamation is in vain, so is your faith. In verse 17 of that very chapter, again, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. You are here this morning for a reason. You are here because it's Resurrection Sunday. It's an important day for those who follow Jesus. It's a day we celebrate the resurrection that we have and serve and love and worship a living God. He's not a little cross around our neck. He's not, it's not because of our earrings or some little golden statue somewhere. He is a living God, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father today, and his presence is very real even in this moment with us today. The tomb is empty. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Thomas Bushnell said, is absolutely the best attested fact in ancient history because of so many eyewitnesses, multiple accounts of seeing him alive after they saw him dead on the cross. Let's get back to John chapter 20, though. As Mary approaches the tomb, it's early in the morning and it's still dark. She sees, though, what catches her eye is that something had been moved. In fact, she said, John says the stone, she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so with that in mind, she doesn't investigate. She runs immediately back to the disciples. She finds Peter and John, and she tells them what, they have, what she has witnessed, what she has seen. Notice what she says. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. The stone is gone. His body is gone. Mary is assuming the body is stolen. Mary is assuming someone, either the Jews or the Romans, have taken the body of Jesus away. That just kind of shows you that she had no sense or understanding, rather, that the tomb would be empty. She very much thought, because as they went to the tomb, they were carrying the spices to continue the preparation of his body and, and move that process Along, which would have been very normal. But the fear here is that somewhere, someone is trying to create a hoax. Someone is going to point the finger at these, uh, these believers or these followers of Jesus. And whatever they account to is, is just some kind of mystical appearance of Christ. Beloved, we believe at Coastal Oaks Church in the real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. He was not a spirit He was not a a mist, a fine mist of any kind. 
He walked through that wall and appeared to the disciples just as you and I are alive today. That's what is accounted for. Thomas didn't believe it. He demanded to see the signs. And when he saw the hands and the feet of Jesus, he knelt down and he cried out with all of his heart, my Lord and my God. He knew what he was seeing then. He knew. But Mary is a bit confused. So Peter and John run to the tomb. I love verse four. I've always found that kind of, uh, kind of funny, and I chuckle sometimes when I read it, that when John is writing, he always refer- references himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And he writes here in verse three, Peter and the other disciple, that's, he's referring to himself, John, went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. All right? He's got to like fit that in there. Right? I beat Peter to the tomb. All right? Yeah, but John, you didn't go in the tomb. You just looked at it. You didn't go in. Yeah, but I beat Peter to the tomb. All right, let's just have that there. It's biblical record. It's never going to change. John beat Peter to the tomb. I just find that kind of funny, and I, I chuckle when I, when I read that. But look what, John, look what John did. John stoops down. He sees the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, Peter is going to be a bit different. Peter followed John, but he, he, he goes into the tomb, and he sees there on the, on the slab, on the rock, the linen cloths that the, had, Jesus had been wrapped in. That was Joseph and, and Nicodemus had prepared the body for burial, put it in the tomb, Okay, they see those cloths lying there on the slab where Jesus had been. The wrapping, he says in verse 7, that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. That would have been some kind of turban-like material, and they would have wrapped most likely around his head to keep his mouth closed like this. And uh, that's what the scholars say. I've not ever seen it done that way. But that's what the scholars say. Uh, but that's separate And all of that to say, the grave robbers wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap him and carry him off like that. Um, The soldiers there, that that wouldn't have happened. And for that napkin or or head covering to be so folded so neatly and 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 put separate from that just shows it's not a it's not a situation where they stole his body. Okay, we're going to find out what happened to him in just a few minutes. But um, as we look at this, I want you to notice that in this. In this story, there's a progression of the Greek verb here um, a little bit. Um, and, and when we see John for the first time, it's in verse 5. He says that John looked in and saw. What he saw was he saw the clothes, the cloth lying there. Okay, He just saw that. Then in verse 6, we hear Peter. We get to see Peter. Um, Simon Peter also came in, he entered the tomb, and he saw the cloths lying there. Now, that verb is different. To see is different than the first one that John used for himself, okay? The first one is, like, I see you, you see me. We see each other, okay? All right, that's, I see things happening. Not, not a whole lot of thought going on there. I just perceive, I see because I see it there, all right? Second one, though, this is where we get our word theorize. So Peter sees the cloths lying there on the slab, and he's thinking, He's, he's processing what he's seeing, right? This is stunning. I mean, this is the guy that walked on water getting out of the boat, right? This is Peter who always opened his mouth first before he thought about what he was going to say and, and acted. And here, he, he's stunned because he sees the cloth lying there. He sees the, the head wrapping separate. But he's, he's trying to, to come up with what does this mean, what is going on? What does this mean? And then verse 8, 
we, see, come, we come back to John. It says, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. This is that third level here that he sees with comprehension. He sees what, what the same thing Peter saw. He sees it and he understood. Peter's standing trying to figure this out. John is standing there. He sees it and it begins to click what's going on. Now, does he understand everything? That No, because he says in verse 9, they did not yet understand the scriptures that, must, that he must rise from the dead. But there's something in John that's starting to click. He sees and he believes. Now, we will understand that Peter will come to a place where he is going to understand too, where he's going to get it. When he sees Jesus for the first time, he grasps understand, and understands everything. In fact, Peter will become the preacher of the book of Acts, if you will. Peter and Paul really do a, a large majority of the preaching in that book. But in Acts chapter 10, he's at the house of Cornelius. And here's what he says to Cornelius and his family. This is his testimony. He says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in Judea, in the Judea country, and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. From Genesis to Malachi, all the prophets tell that truth. And now Jesus has come back. That is absolute reality. The fact that his grave clothes are there point to the legitimacy of his resurrection and not grave robbers. Grave robbers would have been in a hurry, not unwrapped his body. But John looks and he sees. He understands just enough to grasp what's going on. He believes Jesus is risen from the dead. Does he understand all of it? Not enough to write a big theological dissertation over it? No. But it just takes the mustard seed-sized faith. That's all it requires. The theme of John's gospel, you can find in verse 31 of this very chapter. And he writes, these things are written, his gospel. It's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These eyewitness accounts that we have in the New Testament, they are written so that you would believe in Jesus and have life in his name, the Son of God. The appearance of the angels will also confirm what John is believing, that his missing body is not because someone took it, but because of the mighty hand of God. Where do those angels come in? Well, let's look in John chapter 20, verse 11. Mary is back at the tomb. She's standing outside the tomb and she's crying. Why is she crying? Because Jesus is dead and is lost. She knows and she thinks the body's been taken. She stooped into the tomb to look in. She saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the, he at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told him, and I don't know where they've put him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Now, why doesn't she recognize Jesus? Well, have you ever been crying so much that when you look up, your eyes are blurry? Yes, yeah. She's in the middle of grief. Her heart is broken. She doesn't know where Jesus is. She's come to honor his body and helping prepare, uh, continue the preparation for his burial with the spices and things that were needed. She can't do that. Her heart is broken. She loved Jesus. Jesus radically changed her life. She had seven demons, Luke tells us, and Jesus cast them out of her. That changed her life forever. And now the one who changed her life can't be found. She's broken. She doesn't know. Supposing he was the gardener, she, said, she replied to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, called her by name, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told him what he said to her. Friends, we serve the living Lord Jesus. Peter and John returned to the place where they were, where they had been staying and Still puzzled, perhaps, Peter was. John still wrestling through, perhaps thinking back all the things that Jesus had taught them, all the lessons, all the parables, all the times that he had sat down to teach, all the miracles that he had seen, and how many, how many times Jesus had said what he said. But Mary gets the first glimpse at the risen Jesus. Her life, again, is radically changed by Jesus. As these two angels had appeared in this fascinating conversation taking place in the tomb, her grief is real, and in the middle of that grief and in the middle of her brokenness, again, the Savior stepped in and intervened and radically changed. You remember, in this very gospel, it's the Gospel of John chapter 10, where Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. You might remember from that passage, or if you've never read it, I'd encourage you to read it sometime. He's talking to himself, talking about himself, teaching how he is the good shepherd. He'll say something to this effect. My sheep know my voice. Mary did not recognize him until he called her by name. Mary, when he said her name and called to her, the sheep knew the shepherd and responded. Now, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. There's something more for Jesus to be doing. He hasn't gone back to the Father. He's got more to go. He's going to ascend back to heaven to, seat, uh, to be seated at the right hand of his Father, it hasn't happened yet, so she can't cling to him. He's not going to be staying around. Mary, I've got things to do, and so do you. And what does he do? He says, go back and tell the others. Mary, you've got a message. You have seen the risen Lord. I'm alive. I'm going to send back to the Father. Mary, you need to tell them they're going to see me. 
You need to tell them that what this means is you're going to have to walk by faith now and not by sight. It's the same for us today. They're going to have to learn to process how to live without Jesus' physical presence with them. He's been with them for three years. They saw him die on the cross, and now on the third day, he's back alive. But yet, in about 40 days from this point, he's going to ascend back to the Father. And now we, church, wait his return to come back. But we live day to day, walking by faith, not by sight. That's the standard for all of us now. Just like Thomas at the end of this chapter wanted to see the real proof of Jesus. Yeah, I'm not going to believe unless I see him. And guess what happened for Thomas? Thomas got to see him. He appeared to Thomas and showed him the wounds that he had from the cross. And Thomas again fell on his knees and professed, my Lord and my God. Jesus tells Mary to go and tell the others. Mary is our first evangelist. She's the first gospel witness to go out and say, he is alive. But there's another change. Notice what Jesus did not call them. He did not say, go tell my disciples. What did he say? Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. He calls them brothers for the first time. His death and his resurrection changed everything. Now they were a family. God the Father, Jesus their brother. Go tell my brothers that I am alive and I'm gonna ascend to the Father. Friends, those who trust in Jesus Christ are adopted into the family. We're not there by birth, by blood. Well, we are in a different sense. We're adopted that when God, or excuse me, when Jesus declared it is finished, paid in full, that gavel of God's justice finally struck its final blow. And the blood of Christ now cleanses us from our sin, but it also brings us into the family. When we trust in the Lord, go tell my brothers. And something that, a phrase that stuck out to me from about six or seven years ago, attending a preaching conference, uh, the the preacher slash professor at the time was Dr. Barry McCarty. And he used this phrase, preaching out of another book, the book of Philemon, but this phrase has always stuck with me since the first time I heard it, and it was, the gospel is the change that changes everything. The gospel meaning good news. The good news is the change that changes everything. It changed Onesimus' life in Philemon, but it changed Mary's life right here, and it changed the disciples. They're no longer disciples. Now they're brothers and, and they're sisters in Christ. The gospel is the change that changed everything. We can see just from John's gospel, how it changed Joseph and this guy named Nicodemus, who in John chapter 3 is, is curious about Jesus. And he's like, uh, Jesus, I, we, we know you're from God. Who could be doing all these things you're doing and, and not be? Um, and, and, and he asked Jesus how, about eternal life. And that's where Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is still kind of confused about that. I'm an old man. How could I be born again? Which leads us to John 3, 16, where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was a kind of a secret follower of Jesus until he died at the cross and he and Joseph of Arimathea took Christ's body to the grave but it changed Joseph and it changed Nicodemus to be open followers of Jesus we see how Jesus suffered in the gospel the the affliction uh, thrust upon him by the Jews and the Romans 
And yet then, by the, by the resurrection, the good news that he's come back, we find affection and adoration. We see that the grave changed from occupied to empty. Praise God for that. We see that as John looks in, he sees, but then he enters in and he believes in the resurrection. Mary changed from weeping to rejoicing. Thomas will go from doubting to faith in the proclamation, my Lord and my God. Thousands will repent in the book of Acts and trust in the name that is above every other name, which is the name of Jesus on the day of Pentecost for the forgiveness of their sins. They will believe the eyewitness account that Jesus is risen from the grave, that he is in fact the Messiah of the scriptures teach about and proclaim about. Many will believe in the name The only name given among men and women by which we can be saved, which is the name of Jesus. In the book of Acts, you'll find men and women, men like Cornelius and his entire family, women like Lydia, who who is is quite gifted and skilled in her life, but also there, there a church will start. You'll find people, husbands and wives like Aquila and Priscilla. You'll find there Paul, whose life is radically changed from murderer to professor and proclaimer of Jesus Christ. You'll find Apollos, John Mark, Timothy, and Barnabas, Jude, Philemon, a man by the name of Onesimus in the New Testament. There are so many more that you will find whose lives are radically changed by this eyewitness account of the resurrected Savior of Jesus. You get a letter like Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus where verses uh, chapters 1 and 2 present the perfect explanation of the change that the gospel brings in a man or woman or boy or girl that in Christ and in Christ alone was God's plan for the redemption of the world. That in Christ we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. There we'll also find that God exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, or any title ever given among men, everything is subjected to his feet, for he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And in that powerful display on that first resurrection morning, we too who are dead in, Christ, are dead in our sins are now graced by the Lord Jesus Christ with life, that in Christ you today by grace through faith can be made alive with him. For in your sins, you are dead in your sin. That means that when you die, if you die today without Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of your life, having repented and turned away from that and turned to him and say, only you, Jesus, none other. If you did that today and you you breathed your last, the Bible says you will spend an eternity in a place called hell. But you know what? God loves you, and he didn't want that to be your final and the end of your story. He loved you so much he sent Jesus. His will is for all that, that all would get saved and that none would perish. Today is your day. If you've not done that yet, you have an opportunity on this very day, the Resurrection Sunday of 2022. The change is that we are made alive with Christ, by faith and grace. Brother and sister, you don't need to clean yourself up in order to get to Christ. That's not how it works. He takes you dirty and dingy the way we are. He takes all of us that way. You don't shine yourself up and and say, here I am, I'm all clean and ready for you now, Jesus. No, Mary had seven demons. He cast them out of her. 
There's no way she could have cleaned herself up and brought herself to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, now I'm all squeaky clean. I'm acceptable to you, beloved. He loves you. That's called grace. You don't merit salvation. There's nothing about you or me that merits this grace, this forgiveness, but God loves you. And that's what he wants for you. And you just need to receive his gift. For the millions who've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, life has changed. Life has changed. Death was defeated. Life has changed. I pray today that your life will change if you have not received Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Are you a part of the family? I wonder if you've been adopted. Paul writes to the Romans, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, the fear of death, that is. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Our position has changed by this resurrection. For those that are in Christ, for those who believe and receive this gift of grace, God will do a work in your life. When he grants that gift of faith, we become his children. When we believe on Jesus, we become a part of the family. That is the gospel that changes everything. And I wonder if you would believe in the good news today. If you never have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, beloved, Acts chapter three says, repent and turn back. Repent and turn back. He calls you to it. He's waiting. Just like the story, the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son, in that we also get a glimpse of how the father responds, which is he's waiting, he's watching, and he's ready for you to come back. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. If you're ready to receive that this morning, in a moment I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. It's not the magical formula or anything, it's just talking to the Lord, and that's where your heart needs to be. Not, not talking back to me, just talking to the Lord praying, confessing sin, turning away from it. Now, we want to turn away from it in our hearts. We don't ever want to go back to it. He has the power to change your life, and he can free you, and he will if you'll trust him. Second, Christian, you trusted Jesus already, but it's been a while. I believe Acts 3.19 speaks to you too. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, the living presence of the Lord. This day can be a reset. Whatever has pulled you away from the Lord, he too is waiting to hear from you. As Andy and our praise team will come in a few minutes, we'll sing again. 
one more song before we're done for the day. But that's your opportunity to respond and just, you don't have to sing, just spend some time praying. Confess whatever it is that needs to be confessed and ask for forgiveness. And the word says he will forgive us and cleanse us from our sin. He's waiting. 